0: Ladina has a list of dad jokes, I just realized, that says it's from countryliving.com, her favorite website. These are awful. Oh, I like this one, though. How do you follow Will Smith in the snow? You follow the Fresh Prince. Yeah. That one's good. Oh, Country Living really went out of their way for that one. Welcome. Uh, my name's Anthony, someone just spilled pop all over me while I was back there. Feel free to eat and drink in the sanctuary. <laughs> i glad you're here on this Father's Day. Um, we are in a series right now that is called Open Doors. We've been looking at how we believe as a church that we are right now in our culture in a season of Open Doors, specifically Open Doors um, for Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the door. Whoever comes in through me will be saved. We've been talking about how To really experience fullness in Christ, we need to open up the doors of our heart and allow him to inhabit every part of us. And so he, in the life of a Christian or the life of those who do not know Christ, he's knocking on the door of our hearts for us to come in. We then talked about how this is a season of open heavens that right now, I believe, is an opportunity for the church to experience the supernatural, to encounter the Holy Spirit, to receive and discover spiritual gifts, and to walk in those things We then discussed how we're in a season of open effectiveness. It's an effective time to receive the gospel, that people would put their faith in Christ. And because of that, it's a great time to share the good news of the gospel in our communities. And then finally, the last two weeks, we talked about this idea of open tent flaps or open vision specifically. What does it mean to have vision for our life? And that if we limit our vision, we limit where we can go. But if we expand our vision, we can go even further. And we talked about the vision God's given us for our church in the future as well. And we have two more weeks of this left. And Ladina just spoke, actually, we had planned on an entire week on an open windows message. But she is going to be talking about that the next two weeks during tithe and offering. And so today I'm going to be talking to you about open gates. And then next week... I'm going to be talking to you about um, this idea of standing in the door jamb, uh, but before we go there, we're going to talk about open gates today, or an alternative title to today's message could be just simply keys to the kingdom, so keys to the kingdom or open gates, however you'll remember this better, you hold on to one of those titles, and if you have a Bible, if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, that's what we're going to be reading from today and I'm just going to jump right in. So in Matthew 16, um, this is my favorite passage of Scripture, but in Matthew 16, Jesus takes his disciples to a place that is called Caesarea Philippi. It's called this because um, Philip, the son of King Herod, wanted to build a temple in honor of Caesar Augustus of Rome so that Caesar could be worshiped as Caesar was often worshiped as a god in the Roman culture. And so Jesus takes his disciples there to this place. Now a couple of things about this place. I want you to really understand what this place is, what's going on in this place, what's happening, so you can see the significance of what it is that Jesus said and read his words in context. So Caesarea Philippi is at the base of a mountain, and that mountain that Caesarea Philippi is at the base is is this mountain here in the image that you're watching online, or the image behind me in house. That's uh, Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in Israel, also the tallest mountain in Syria as it borders Syria as well. It is snow-capped most of the year, How many of you knew there's actually a ski resort in Israel? Um, It's there on top of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon can be seen from all over the country at 9,000 feet, snow-capped mountain in the northernmost part of Israel. And so at the base of this mountain is, again, where Jesus brought 12, just 12 of his disciples. And the place that is called Caesarea Philippi, it used to be called... Um, this name pronounced with a B, uh, Banias, but specifically that was this place, um, Panias, Uh, the word Pan for the Greek god Pan. Pan was this half goat, half human goat god of the Greek pantheon, possibly existing before ancient Greece. Um, Imagine, if you will, like a fawn or Mr. Tumnus from um, the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. Imagine someone playing a flute. That is What Pan looked like. And so this place, at least for centuries, if not actually thousands of years, was associated with Pan. And so it was called Panias. Um, Banias is how the Greeks pronounced it. And when the Romans came in and the son of Herod, Philip, wanted to make a name for himself by kind of kissing up to Caesar, they changed the name to Caesarea Philippi. And there is a cave at the base of this mountain. There's a cave. At this place, Caesarea Philippi, and there's a picture here of me in front of that cave. And that cave um, has the very uh, romantic, peace-inducing name, uh, the Gates of Hell. Uh, The Gates of Hell is the name of this particular cave. This is a very large gaping hole in the side of this very large rock mountain. The cave doesn't go very far back, um, but it is a very large hole you can see from far away. And again, people all over the ancient world knew of this place called the Gates of Hell. And those that lived in the ancient Near East that knew of this place, they actually believed that the gates of hell was a literal portal to the underworld. And the belief of the people at that time was that the fertility gods during the winter, that they would go and hibernate inside of the gates of hell until spring, where they would come out and um, offer fertility to those who worshipped at this particular site. In this cave, it was thought to be bottomless. In fact, there are multiple historical accounts of people trying to measure how deep this cave was because the cave used to be a spring. So this was a spring that water came forth from. They tried to measure the depths of, and different historians say it was bottomless and it had an immeasurable amount of water that resided within it. And so the water that came out of this cave it was a spring which was and still is the primary source of the Jordan River that we read all about in the New Testament. So this, this particular cave formed this major spring that would feed the Jordan River. This was a, a horrible place. Um, in order to sacrifice to these fertility gods, people would sacrifice people into this cave. And the way they could tell if the sacrifice had been accepted by the fertility gods is they would throw living people into this bottomless pit. And if they sunk and did not come back up, uh, then the gods accepted the sacrifice. But if they flailed about as they are drowning and did not sink, and if there was blood that came out of the water, then the gods did not accept the sacrifice. Either way, it's bad to be the sacrifice thrown into the gates of hell, this bottomless pit pit of a cave filled with immeasurable amounts of water. Eventually, an earthquake, though, would strike the land, and it would alter the course of the spring that literally came out of this cave. And so the cave collapsed. The spring then went lower into the ground, and now it comes out where you can see here on this right picture towards the bottom is literally uh, the water of the spring coming out of the bottom of that particular cave. And if you've ever been to Camp Sherman in central Oregon and seen the Metolius River come out of the spring, it looks literally identical to that, minus all the pine trees. And so this is this place that Jesus takes his disciples to. So the Greeks honored Pan there, and the Romans came in, and the Romans came and specifically Philip, he began to build temples to false gods. And there's an image of that you could put on the screen. He built temples to gods like Zeus, Pan, other gods of the Greek pantheon, but even built a temple to Caesar himself. In fact, right in front of the gates of hell, on the far left, you can see the cave entrance and then literally the temple of Caesar Augustus. And so Romans would go to this extremely far out of the way place and actually worship Rome and worship Caesar as one of their gods amongst many gods that were worshipped at this particular place. And so I hope you're starting to wonder why on earth would Jesus take his disciples to this place? Well, the place is a little bit more interesting than just this because the Jews during the time of Jesus, they read a book that maybe some of you have read. It's not in our Bible. It's not canonized, but the Jews read it and believed it as their history. But they in the book of Enoch, uh, which is quoted in Jude and quoted in First Peter chapter 3, um, they believe the Jews, that on top of this mountain, Mount Hermon, the sons of God, mentioned in Genesis 6, the sons of God descended, and they took for themselves daughters of men, any as they chose, and they bore children with them, which Genesis says, those are the men of old, the men of renown, the giants that lived in those days known as the Nephilim. And so the Jews at the time of Jesus believed that this spiritual incursion, the spiritual rebellion, the fall of these angels, or the birth of the Nephilim happened here at this place on top of this mountain before the flood of Noah. So we can agree, regardless of whether that happened there or not, this was a spiritually historical place. This was a place of rebellion. This was a place of evil. This was a place of fallen angels, of idolatry, of occultism, of human sacrifice and um, awful sexual sin, as people would engage in sexual ritualistic sacrifice in front of these temples to these false fertility gods. This was a place that was a symbol of the world in all of its darkness. It was a place that was a symbol of the power and the culture of the world represented specifically with um, Caesar himself. And so of all field trips for Jesus to take his disciples on, we can agree that this is a strange field trip indeed. This is actually the furthest Jesus ever wandered from the base of his ministry. It was about 30 miles to the north of where he usually spent his time, and he takes his disciples all the way to this high elevation place at the base of this enormous mountain And it was an unclean place to the Jews if there ever was an unclean place. But he went out of his way to bring them there. So why did Jesus take his disciples to this place? We we actually find out in Matthew 16. I've given you context for it. So in Matthew 16, verse 13, we find out that Jesus went to this place to tell his disciples who he was. They're going to find out from Jesus himself exactly who he is. And so it says in verse 13 that when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, if you could actually yeah put the verse up, and then when we're not on the verse, go back to the picture of the temples, because I want you to know that's, that's literally where they're at. When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist. That doesn't make sense. He just was beheaded about a year ago. Some say that you're Elijah who lived about 700 years ago. Some say you're Jeremiah, who lived about 500 years ago. Some people say you're just one of the prophets. But Jesus looks at them, and Jesus asks the most important question any of us can ever answer in our lives. He says, who do you say that I am? Every one of you must answer that question for yourself. Jesus was either a liar, he was crazy, or he was who he said he was. There is no doubt that Jesus was this historical person, this historical figure. But who is this man that has made an everlasting impact on planet Earth amongst the human race for 2,000 years? Who is Jesus to you? It's important. So Simon Peter says, I'll take a shot. Peter is always the one to speak up out of turn, but here he is responding to Jesus' question, and Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're, you're the Messiah. That's what Christ means. You're the anointed one, the sent one. You are the Christ. You're the one that the Jews have been waiting for. We've been waiting for you to come and to rescue us. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You're like God himself. By calling someone the Son of God, he was saying, you are equal to and worthy of worship As if you're God, because you are. And we know now, in hindsight, looking at scriptures, that God exists forever and always as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here, Peter recognizes that Jesus is God. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy to submit your life to. If he truly was the Christ, and if he truly was the Son of God, then he was a threat to Rome. He was a threat to the Jews. He was a threat to, of course, the devil the forces of darkness, and every single thing associated with this place, Jesus was a threat to. So verse 17, Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, that's his given name. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Jonah was his father, not Jonah in the fish Jonah, but a different man named Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Jesus is it's kind of like, in a nice way, he's saying, like, people in the South are like, oh, you're, you're real special. You're, you're, wow, that's that's really something. Bless your heart. What Jesus is saying is, you're kind of dumb, Simon, so you didn't think of this on your own, and the only way that you could come up with this is if my Father revealed it to you, and that's exactly what happened. And the thing is, we're kind of dumb, too. Our hearts are a little, need to be blessed also. And so it's God who reveals to us who Jesus is. My prayer is that if you don't know Jesus, God would reveal himself to you today. And so Jesus says, Peter, my father must have revealed this truth to you. See, I believe, as I mentioned before, it's a season of open effectiveness. This was a season for Peter to receive the gospel. As a result, we are not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, who everyone who believes. And so we shouldn't be ashamed. There are people now like Peter who God is just waiting to reveal who Jesus is to him. So he says in verse 18, I tell you that you are Peter. Now imagine if you will, uh, I'm looking at Caleb right now. If, If Jesus said, hey, Caleb, I tell you your name is Caleb. And Caleb is like, no duh, I know my name, Jesus. Thank you for pointing out the obvious. But Jesus says, you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church. Well, that's a funny thing to say to Peter. Why reiterate his name? So Peter, you're right. I'm the Christ. I'm the son of the living God. Your name's Peter. And I tell you that on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here we find context. Read the Bible in context. They are literally standing in front of a place that for centuries has been known as the gates of hell. He takes them there for this reason, to reveal who he is. I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the very first time in the Bible where this word church ever shows up. Up until this point in Greek, The word church, it translates to ecclesia, and what it meant basically was ones who are gathered and sent out. Specifically in the context of Rome, if you can go back to that temple slide, in the context of Rome, a church was where people were gathered under the banner of Rome. They were gathered under the power of Caesar. They were gathered and they were sent out to accomplish political business, political stuff, empire stuff. And what do you know here at Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar himself on the far left of the screen, you are looking at a church, literally an ecclesia, a place where people gathered under the banner of Rome. And when they gathered, they actually declared Caesar is Lord. And they believed that gods like Pan were God's. This was a place that was associated with being a or having an allegiance to Rome. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm mixing that up a little bit. On my rock, I am going to build my church. I'm going to build a new type of ecclesia. So this concept of Christianity and Jesus and church, it didn't exist until Matthew chapter 16. The Jewish idea of what we would think of as like a church was a synagogue. It was entirely different. This is a church, a gathered church group, a gathered community who would be called out and sent out, and they wouldn't gather under the fact that Caesar was Lord, but instead the church would declare Jesus is Lord, and they would worship Jesus as the one true God and not worship spirits like Pan as a God at all. So these are the church that Jesus said he's going to build, and when he says he's going to build this church on a rock, what is he talking about? What does it mean that Jesus would build his church on a rock? And I want to show you, there's actually three answers that are correct in context to what Jesus says. Number one, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Here, I believe, literally this very rock. This is an enormous rock with an enormous cave in it that says and is called the gates of hell. And so Jesus is telling Peter, on places like this that represent evil, on places like this that represent evil in every form and the devil and his works and his effects and his forces and all the kingdoms of darkness, on places like this, I am actually going to overtake those places. I will build a new group of gathered people on this rock, literally. There is a church to Caesar, and Jesus says, yeah, we'll upend that, and I'm going to build a church for me. And so that temple of Caesar, you can walk around on the ruins of it today, and just below this temple, um, a couple years ago, I got to preach the gospel, and so literally, the gates of hell couldn't prevail against this place. On that rock, Jesus built his church, and so pastors for centuries have been preaching right there, where people used to worship Caesar. So, on this rock, I'll build my church. What else is this rock? Number two, he says, you are Peter. Why is that significant? It is because Peter's name actually means rock. It's Petrus, but it doesn't just mean rock. It means little rock. It, does Dwayne the Rock Johnson have a son? Okay, if his name is not Peter, we're missing out. But he says, "You are Peter, and on this rock, you, you are a little rock, Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church." Peter literally preached the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches the gospel. Over 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ in one day on behalf of the preaching of Peter, the preaching of the gospel through the power of the Spirit. And so Catholics will say, um, this is where Peter became the first pope. And though I, I don't agree as a protestant that there are such things as popes god did give to peter this mantle of being an apostle that truly is and was passed on to others who have led the church for centuries not through one central church but there are leaders throughout the church who also are given a mantle of being an apostle preachers prophets evangelists and here jesus says peter i'm going to use you to build the church but there's one more option that is the answer that jesus is giving Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. In the uttermost context of this scripture, this is what Jesus is saying. He is saying, on what you just said, I'm going to build my church. And Peter, the little rock, standing in front of a big rock, He just said, an even bigger rock, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, yes, and I'm building my house, my church, on that foundation. Just as the story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 6, that a wise man builds his house upon a rock. And here he says, I'm building a new kind of church on exactly what you said. And so now the church is built, this new kind of church, on me. He was going to call out and he was going to gather a new group of people from the world. He was going to set his church out on mission for his glory and his purpose alone. And this church would be built by Jesus, on Jesus, and for Jesus. And out of all my notes I was taking when I was developing this sermon, that's what I grabbed onto the most. The church of Jesus Christ is built by him, on him, and for him. And so these churches of Rome, they would say, Caesar is Lord, and then the Christians would come along, and they would say, Jesus is Lord, and we see why Jesus got crucified. So if he says he's going to build his church on a rock, what does it mean when he says that the gates of hell won't prevail? Well, number one, they are literally at a place called the gates of hell. And so this gate of hell, it represents evil's grip on the world. And so the church that Jesus is building will be sent out. The church that Jesus is building will be used by him to break down these systems, to destroy evil, and to establish the kingdom over the empires of this world. And whoever abides, whoever lives behind the gates, whoever is hiding in defense behind the gates of hell can't prevail. And when the people, when the spirits, when the forces of evil learn that the gates that they've built up in defense against the coming of God's kingdom can't prevail, all of hell, all of the evil forces in this universe don't like that one bit. Evil does not like it when God's kingdom is advancing, when God's kingdom is growing, the enemy throws a fit. And so as they throw up these defenses, as they build these gates... Jesus says, you build them all you want, but they just can't stand up to me, and they can't stand up to the church. So those who have been captive behind the gates of hell, because of Jesus, those who are captive have the ability to be freed when the church breaks down the gates and goes in to rescue those who are there. The church is called to go to dark places. The church is called to go to the bad parts of town. The church is called to go into the dangerous countries. The church is called to go into evil places because when we go, we're advancing God's kingdom. And when we go, we are light in darkness. And when we go, we are salt and light to advance the kingdom of God. And so Jesus came. He says, here I am. This is who I am. And he does it in this evil, wretched, unclean, unsanctified Horrible place. And the reason he does this here is because Jesus is putting the enemy on notice. Hey guys, I've given you a little bit of time, but the time's up. And I'm here to tell you that you're about to be defeated. So here he puts the enemy on notice, the devil, because he came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus put the enemy unnoticed. The sons of God who descended on this very mountain and attempted to destroy and pervert God's creation, God's there to put them unnoticed. The evil spirits who pose as gods like Pan. God says, Pan, you're nothing. Your flute has no power over people anymore. It's me. I'm here. I'm putting you on notice. Jesus is there to put the demons and the unclean spirits on notice who possess and oppress mankind and stand in opposition to his work. He's saying, hey, demonic forces, you've got no power anymore. Jesus is actually there to put Rome on notice. They've got a temple to their president. he says, hey, guys, you're put on notice. Rome's going to fall. And in fact, Rome will fall by becoming Christian. Jesus says, I'm putting you on notice, and Jesus is putting on notice here the very religious spirit which hijacked Judaism and causes people to miss out on the grace of God. Jesus is at this place to really throw down, say, I'm about to destroy all of you. I'm putting notice Jesus has come to set the captives free, to soon release the spirits of the faithful dead and usher them and those who belong to Jesus after him to his presence in paradise. And Jesus is at this place to build his church and prepare his church to be sent out into dark places to bring the light of his kingdom. And hell will not be able to stop Jesus or his church. And those who have put their allegiance in Jesus Christ, hell cannot harm you. So Jesus is there to say all the effects of sin, all the grips of evil over you, they no longer have power over you. And you might say, Pastor, don't we still get sick and die? Yeah, we do. But what awaits us on the other side of sickness and death is far greater than anything we've experienced here. Either way, Jesus wins, and one day, the last enemy will be made the footstool of Jesus Christ, and that's literally hell and the grave. And so Jesus is, has, and will defeat death to its fullest. So what does Jesus do after this? He just says, I'm building a church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. He takes the 12... And he says, hey, I want nine of you to stay here. I'm just taking my favorites with me. How many of you have favorites? Favorite kids, right? Happy Father's Day. No, no one has favorite kids. How many of you have a favorite wife? I do. She's the only one I got. (laughs) So Jesus picks his favorites. Peter, James, and John. Peter, the dumb one. James and John, the fiery ones. Hey, guys. You know that mountain that, that... Israel believes the sons of God descended upon to destroy mankind. Yeah, we know about it, Jesus. I think that's why we're here. We're going to climb that mountain. Hey, Jesus, it's winter, and that mountain is 9,000 feet tall. There's a lot of snow. No problem. We're going up to the top. And so they hike to the top of the mountain. Hiking is very spiritual. And when they get to the top of this mountain, Peter, James, and John fall asleep, as they often do. And they wake up in the middle of the night, and Jesus is just chilling with Moses and Elijah, their spirits, Jedi style, and Jesus has not looked like Jesus quite anymore. He's kind of like glowing, and they're like, this is interesting, and Peter wakes up, and he says, it's good for us to be here. Let's build tents, and Jesus is like, "Whoa, you misunderstand. So Jesus just told them, here's who I am. I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, In the same mountain that those evil spirits descended on in the eyes of the Jewish people, Jesus ascended, and he says, I've got control over that too. I'm not just going to tell you who I am. Literally, I'm going to show you Peter, James, and John. He, again, he's putting the enemy on notice. He's there to say, hey, you know all of the law? what we call the Old Testament, the law, I'm fulfilling it. Look, I'm even talking to Moses. You know all the prophecies about me? They all point to me. Look, I'm talking to Elijah. And so he shows, he tells them who he is. He declares who he is. He shows who he is. And immediately after this, the Bible says he's going to set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem because it's winter and they're going to take a slow trip to Jerusalem, 30 miles to the south, where Jesus would live and die and he would be buried and he would rise again, the death and resurrection of Christ. And so he's putting the enemy on notice. They don't know, but hey guys, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we would find that Satan, sin, and death and hell is defeated. Through his life, death, and resurrection, we see the effects of the fall. We see the grip of death and the gates of hell. They no longer bind those who belong to Jesus Christ. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, those who are bound can be loosed. And all who have been loosed and freed from the gates of hell, then they, you and I, are given the mandate, the command, to go and do likewise until he returns. Jesus has bound that which has bound me. Jesus has loosed that which has bound me, so I am free, and Jesus says, now you go and you spread the noose. You go and you say that there's been victory. We see this in wars like World War II where there was entire people groups that didn't know the war was over and it literally took years for some to learn. Hey, the battle's over. The holiday we celebrate tomorrow, Juneteenth. There were slaves in Texas who did not yet know of the Emancipation Proclamation. And so some went to them and said, hey, you guys are actually free. This is the exact same mission that we have been given. The battle has already been won. The slaves have already been set free. You and I are just messengers to say, hey, did you hear that you're not bound anymore? But in fact, you can be loosed. we're given the keys to do likewise. So how does a gate not prevail? If Jesus says, you can do all this and all the gates that are built to stop you from doing it, the the gates won't prevail. And when I I actually just realized this this week, I've never saw the scriptures like this. I always just saw Jesus as this beautiful spiritual battering ram. Hey, he's going to just bust down the gates of hell and he's probably going to use a cross to do it. Well, he's running to get like, come on, open up gates. You could put dynamite in front of the gates. You could break it down with brute force and strength. You could, you could try to break in by, by doing all sorts of things, picking a lock or using a battering ram or lighting it on fire or using a catapult or using a sword. There's all sorts of cool weapons from the first century that could be used to open the gate. But here's what I figured out. You don't have to break down a gate if you got a key. You've got a key. You don't need to break it down. How many of you have ever like had to break into your house because somebody locked the door on you and you were dumb and lost your key? And how many of you that right after you broke into your window or your door that you had to pay money to fix, you realized the key was in your pocket all along? That's exact same thing. You don't have to break down the gates of hell. In fact, you can't. You don't need to break down the gates of hell because Jesus has secured the key and he has given you the key so that you can actually go in and and open up the gate. And all of hell is pissed off that you're going in. And you're kicking a hornet's nest and the enemy doesn't like it that you and I have the keys to the kingdom of God. And so... Jesus says the gates of hell can't prevail because you've got the key and you can open the door yourself and you can join me in telling others about this. And so let's look at verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, that sounds strange. I don't know what this binding and loosing is. That sounds pretty spiritual. That sounds pretty hyper-religious. That sounds kind of like witchcrafty, binding and loosing. What's Jesus talking about? But if you look at this in what we've just read, the context of Matthew 16, the context of Matthew 16 here in Caesarea Philippi, if you want to study, read John 20. Read Mark 3, Luke 11. John 20, Mark 3, Luke 11. If you look at the beliefs and writings of the Jewish people during the time of Jesus, that term, binding and loosening, it has one meaning. One thing it means. Some people propose it means um, forgiveness, that when you go and you preach forgiveness, people can receive forgiveness, and then they too can forgive. Eh, kind of, but that's not in context what it's talking about. In context, this idea of binding and loosening is always used in context to um, demonic exorcisms and deliverance of people from evil spirits. Say, Pastor, that's weird. Yeah, it's real weird. You're right. But it was actually like one of the primary focuses of the ministry of Jesus, if you think about it. What did he do? Healed people, preached, cast out demons, and ate a lot of food with people. A lot of people came for the free lunch. They heard some pretty radical offensive teaching. Some of them were healed. Some of them had demons cast out of them. And thousands came for free food, but at the end, 120 stuck around after his resurrection. So Jesus gives the church, which is built on him. Jesus gives the church. He is building the keys to the kingdom the keys of the kingdom that he brought, the keys to the kingdom he's building, the keys to the kingdom he's advancing. And he gave to us keys to open up the gates of hell. Now, to make that very clear, the gates of hell are whatever protects those who are bound by the enemy. And we can go in with that key and we can say, oh, Those things don't bind us anymore. We have the power. We have the authority in the name of Jesus. We can unlock that gate with this key. We can march on in. We can preach the gospel, and we can rescue those who are bound. We can set them free, not by our power, but by the power of Jesus Christ. And we can go out, and they can join us on that same mission of binding and loosening, binding and loosening, binding and loosening. You've been given the keys to open up the gates of hell, and you've been given the keys literally to bind what Jesus calls... Um, very complex, but he calls it the strong man. You're taking notes, Matthew 3, Mark 12, Luke 11. Binding the strong man. When you bind something in the context of what Jesus is talking about, we are literally, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, we are binding the rulers of this age. We are binding the authorities. We are binding the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and we are binding the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, we've been called to bind and loose because sin, death, and hell no longer have power over us anymore. We have authority over them. That authority was secured by Christ, and that authority was given to us by Christ. So when we bind those things, when we bind the strong man, the same keys that are purchased by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, when we bind the enemy, we then lose people who are held captive. And we do it by the power of Christ. We can open up and go through the gates of hell. We can bind the forces of darkness. We can bind the forces of evil that possess, oppress, and bind people. And when we find people on the other side of those gates, we can actually cast out those spirits that bind them. And we can only do it in the name of Jesus. And we can loose those who have been bound with the power of the gospel that we preach. And we can set people free so that they can be handed those same keys. And they can go and do likewise. So why don't we just go around binding things? Why don't we just go around and like just cast demons out? Why don't we go around and just see people delivered from addiction and torment and whatever it is that binds us and just let them be? That's the mistake of the church. So oftentimes the church goes and we just feed hungry people, clothe naked people, build houses for homeless people, but we don't give them anything to fill the house of their heart with. And Jesus says, if you cast out a demon, and if that person that the demon's been cast out of does not fill themselves up with something, meaning the Holy Spirit, the demon will come back with all of his friends and they will make that place worse than it was to begin with. So we have to bind and loose. People need to be set free, not just have the enemy bound, but they need to be freed because sometimes we're our own worst enemy and we need to be loosed even from ourselves and our own nature. So I'll read this in context again. On this rock, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. I will build my ecclesia, my church, my gathered and sent out ones. I will build my church and the gates of hell, which we're standing right in front of, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church because I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you open will be opened. And whatever you lock will be locked. Jesus is saying, If you agree on earth, I've got your back in heaven. If you agree on earth to be loosed, I've got your back in heaven. All heaven has your back if you come to me in the name of Jesus. You and I have the keys. So why aren't we using them? Why do we just walk around and not actually use these keys that we actually possess? And you might say, well, pastor, how do we use the keys? Here's a couple examples. We use the keys every time we walk in the authority of Jesus over the forces of evil. We're using the keys. We use the keys every time we use and operate in our spiritual gifts. The enemy does not like people using and operating in their spiritual gifts. We use the keys every time we go before God in prayer. Every time we go before God in supplication and spiritual warfare. We use the keys every time we preach the gospel to tell people of the forgiveness they can possess and be loosed from their sin. And we use the keys, listen carefully, we use the keys every time we gather as the church. In context, build the church, give the keys. Every time we gather to give Jesus praise, every time we gather to preach his word, every time we gather to serve one another, every time we gather to partake in communion, and every time we gather to pray for each other, we are literally pushing back the forces of darkness, and we use the keys when we move forward in our cities that God's actually given us the keys to. There's kind of a movement within the church right now that gets pretty obsessed with what we're talking about, obsessed with deliverance, obsessed with demonic um, oppression, possession, and casting out demons, and those are all good things that we need to do, but if you become obsessed with those things, those things become obsessed with you. If you become obsessed with those things, you'll think on those things more than you think on the thing. And so, Jesus, when he sent his disciples out and told them, cast out demons, they came back and they were like, wow, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And what did Jesus say? He said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name. Just rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so, as Christians, we use these keys. We do cast out demons. We do deliver people from darkness. We do pray for people. We pray that people are healed. More than anything, we preach the gospel but we can't be prideful or arrogant or weird about it. We just have to know, like, the greatest thing of all is the grace of God, that I am just simply blessed to be able to walk in, because I know that I don't deserve it, and like Peter, I'm dumb, and I'm just glad that God revealed Jesus to me, because that's all that I have. Amen. So walk and use the keys. Kim, if you want to start getting ready, to come on up, and if you could dim our lights down, I want to close us up. Oh, it's other Caleb up there. Hi, Caleb. I just realized who's up there. If you know any friends named Caleb, bring them to free church. We need more. <laughs> Got to be spelled with a C, though. Okay. On this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it because I give you the keys to the kingdom. If you bind something on earth, all heaven's got your back. If you lose something on earth, all heaven has your back. Last week, I revealed to you some of our plans for the summer, for the fall, and beyond. And as we shared with you last week, um, we're going to be um, officially starting not just a worship night, but a church in downtown Salem. And our, our launch date for that, September 17th. And here's why we're doing that. Because when we go into places, we drive stakes into the ground. And when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, he said, Moses, take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. Because God's presence was there. Now God's presence doesn't reside in burning bushes. God's presence resides in burning hearts. And when the church gathers, we are the body of Christ. I understand that your individual body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We focus too much on that and not enough about the fact of the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit collectively when we're together. Whenever we agree on something in the name of Jesus, it will be done. There's power in us gathering in the name of Jesus Christ. And so when we go places as the church, if the Spirit of God is burning on our hearts like he did on a bush on top of a mountain in the desert, and if that ground was holy, everywhere the church goes, the ground's holy. Did you hear that? Everywhere the church goes, the ground is holy. It's like we're literally carrying the ark with us. Now, I get it. God's everywhere. I understand. I know he's omnipresent. I I know the Holy Spirit resides within every Christian. I get it. But there's something about God's manifest presence that dwells with his people. And the Bible tells us that when people see God working amongst his church, that they will be able to step back and say, whoa, God is really among them. Are our churches acting and behaving and held in such a way that people would look at our churches and say, God is among them? Or would they say, these are just a bunch of dead people like everywhere else? Everywhere the church goes, the ground is holy. And so if you want to be a part of starting a new church, if you want to start a church in a different city where you go and you start churches, you are carrying those keys around and you say, pastor, there's a lot of churches. No, there's not. Our church could use 200 more churches, our city could use 200 more churches tomorrow. Not one would be in competition with the other. We'd be doing the same work. So when you walk through your community, when you walk through your mission field at home or abroad, you're carrying the keys to the kingdom. Bind loose, bind loose, bind loose, bind loose. There's something oppressive about the region that we live in the pacific northwest there is something oppressive about the state we live in that is oregon there is something oppressive about the city that we are in and there is something even more oppressive about the core of the city that we are in and when we go into dark places and when we unlock the gates of hell hell cannot prevail against us but the enemy will not be pleased The enemy does not like it when God's people do God's work. But Christ has given us authority over the enemy. An authority that we must use to bind the enemy. An authority we must use to cast out the enemy. An authority we must use to hold back the enemy. And an authority we must use to push back the enemy. And so wherever we go as a church, it will be holy ground built on the foundation of the ground that is Christ himself. And on that holy ground, we use the keys to bind. We use the keys to bind sickness. We use the keys to bind disease. We use the keys to bind perversion. We use the keys to bind evil spirits. We use the keys to bind addiction. And I'm telling you, the most prolific epidemic in our city is tormented minds. We use the keys to bind a tormented mind of someone that is eating away at them. And then we use those keys to loose people. Because when they find deliverance through binding, they need to be freed and handed keys for themselves. Because the church as an institution or a pastor as a person, they don't claim exclusivity over these keys. The body of Christ does as a whole. And so we hand out keys every time someone comes to know Jesus and people can then bind and lose. It doesn't take a pope or a priest to do it. It just takes a Christian. And the Bible says if you're a Christian, you're a saint. You're like, I'm anything but a saint. And the fact that you think that shows, yeah, you're right. None of us are, but by the grace of God, that's what God calls us. And saints are given keys to bind and to loose. Those who have held the keys, and here's what I mentioned for a minute. Um, this is going to be controversial, what I'm about to say. I don't care. Um, listen carefully. It's true, okay? Okay. There have been people in our city that have held the keys for a very long time. There are those who have held the keys to the kingdom in our city that have left or are leaving specifically the downtown of our city. There are two Protestant evangelical churches in the downtown area of our city. They're good churches. They're partners. They are team members. They're different, but they're preaching the same gospel. Most churches that have stayed in the core of our city and in just about every city on the West Coast, most churches who have stayed stopped using this. Most churches that have stayed have stopped using the keys. And the weird thing about it is when they stopped using these keys, they were actually bound, and I'm pretty certain of this, by a religious spirit. Because it is the most, it is the most traditional, mainline, um, church service, conservative churches that have been bound by a religious spirit, um, Churches that say, whoa, you got to come in here, you better wear the right clothes. you got to come in here, you better do this thing. We have this pomp and this circumstance, and we've got to uphold our institution more than we uphold the gospel. And all of a sudden, you stop using these keys, and a religious spirit takes over. And the wild thing about a religious spirit taking over a religious church is that a whole nother spirit takes over, and it's a spirit of perversion which actually becomes a religious spirit itself. What do you mean? They're bound by a religious spirit and the churches in the downtown cores of the cities on the West Coast and throughout our nation that have stopped using these keys and been taken over by this religious spirit have embraced instead every form of sexual perversion and worship it. It's it's, it's very true. The downtown of our city is mostly inhabited by dead churches who affirm, encourage, and celebrate sexual sin. The most of the Churches that have forgot to use their keys in our city are more concerned with politics, and this is not hyperbole or exaggeration, but trees than they are the gospel. I watched a church service of one of these churches in our downtown core of our city, and the pastor was asking the congregation to share their request, and it was just wild. But the wildest thing of all was like, we want to pray for our trees, and the church began to pray for the trees, but they couldn't pray with their voices. They had to pray with hand motions, and it's religious witchcraft. It's wild. Most of the dead churches in our city wave more rainbow flags than they do wave hands and worship to God. The church is dying because we've stopped using these keys. And the wildest irony of all, if I were to ask you, if you knew nothing, I would say, who do you think fills those churches? One, those churches are not filled. They're very empty, number one. Two, you might say, yeah, it's it's, it's young people who've come in and ruined the church. Oh, no, it's not. You watch any of those services, you go into any one, every person in the house has white hair. God bless those of you who have white hair. <laughs> it's ironic. The old people, it happened on their watch. How does it happen? It happens when we devote ourselves to a system, a way of doing things, a religious mindset, a religious spirit, and legalism. When we embrace those things, it turns into the exact opposite, and then those things bind us like legalism as well. It's a spiritual truth, and if you stop using these keys, you will be overtaken by the very thing you're supposed to be binding and loosing. How did the old people let it happen? I, I just, it just doesn't make sense. You can't tell me it's not spiritual. We have an open door. We have a season of open heavens, open opportunity and effectiveness, an open, expanded vision to go into a core of a city that was founded by circuit riding Methodist ministers yeah. and take back what those who came after them just gave away. Yeah. Did you know the city was literally founded? as a Christian city, by Methodist missionaries who gave it away, who allowed the enemy to come and take it. We have the keys to do this. We have the keys to do it. Uh, Dwayne, if you want to get ready to come up and share for just a second. you guys could bow your heads in prayer. Um, Dwayne and I are going to share a little bit of logistics with you, but I don't want that to kill what God's doing right now. Father's Day, um, here's a little uh, a little nugget for Father's Day. Dads, if you could look up at me. If you're a dad, a husband, you want to be a dad, you want to be a husband, look up at me real quick. There's this, this study that you can find all over missions websites, church websites. Um, I tried very hard to find the source for this, and so um, I could not, the sources always just quoted um, other people who quoted this. I don't know where the the, um, original statistic came from, um, but I believe it. Dads, men, husbands, young men. In a family where there is not Christians, if a mother, if the mother or the wife of the family is saved and gives their life to Jesus Christ, out of all of those women, all the women who give their life to Jesus in an unchurched family, 17% of those women will have their families start coming to church. I'll say that one more time to make sure you understand. Of all the women in families, single moms or married moms, it doesn't matter, that they are not a Christian and they find faith in Jesus Christ, out of all of those women, 17% of their families will start going to church. Dads, in homes where there is no faith, in homes where the family does not go to church, in homes where they do not know Christ, if the dad comes to Christ, whether it's a single dad, a married dad, th- those studies are actually get really weird. Um, it doesn't matter, single, married, whatever. Of all of the men who come to faith in Jesus in a family that does not know Christ, out of all those men, of their families will attend church. I'm actually not sure why you clapped, really. Like it's good news, but it's bad news. Because where the heck are the men? Where are you at? Um was it was it last Father's Day I baptized you, Jimmy? Was that Father's Day? Is he here? Yeah, yeah, but when did, when did that happen? Yeah, la- that was the best moment of ministry I had last, uh, last year. Saw, saw these guys, grandpa and dad, give their life to Christ and show it through baptism, and their whole family's here every week. Um, I'm telling you, there's something about it. Some of you guys come like once a month, once every three months or whatever. Hey, I'm glad you're here, but your family needs you here. You need it, but your family needs it way more. We're supposed to raise up our kids in the ways that they should go. And if your priority is sports, if your priority is your kids having a summer job, if your priority is all these things, they're not going to grow up attending church. Those things aren't bad. They're good. But the priority has got to be on Jesus Christ and his kingdom and gathering with his people and using these keys. People have given it up for far too long. And, And we were in the process of losing a generation, but God's doing something to reclaim it. Here's our plans over the next summer. This is logistical. Um, we're going to pray. We're going to sing. There's chicken wings. Um, you can pull up the first slide. Here's This is complicated. That's why we have these summer roadmaps. We've got posters. We've got everything you need this summer. Um, next week is our last week of a 9 and 11 o'clock service. So next week's the last week we're doing 9 and 11 for some time. And With that, next week come, we're doing a 1990s Sunday, and we're going to dress up in our best 90s apparel. We're going to party like it's 1999, and we're going to sing your favorite 90s worship hits. And so that's next week, 90s, 9 and 11. But beyond that, for the months of July, August, and September, July, August, and September, we are not having church the first weekend of the month, because it's summer, and we want to actually encourage you to attend church more. Um, July 2nd is the 4th of July. September 3rd is Labor Day, so no church on those days. But when we do have church at Sunnyside, these are the dates that we do, July and August, 9th, 16th, 23rd, and 30th, and 20th, and 27th, we will have just one 10 a.m. service only. So one 10 a.m. service only in July and August. Again, not the first week of the month. On the third week of the month while we're here, which is going to be July the 16th and August the 20th. So July 16th and August 20th, we're serving a free community lunch. We're going to invite our neighborhood to join us with no agenda except just getting to know them. We'll have bouncy castles, activities, free food, etc., and then on August the 6th, so another way for us to connect as a church and not just reach out to our neighborhood, on August the 6th, the first Sunday of August, we're going to have a beach party. And that's going to be at Fogarty Creek from 1 to 5. We'll be doing um, water baptisms in the Pacific Ocean. And if you ever would like a memento to remember your baptism, uh, a toe that you lost from frostbite is a great way to remember your baptism. And so if you'd like to get baptized in the Pacific Ocean, we'll be doing that. Last year, we had one person that signed up to do it, and seven people spontaneously did it. Um, This year, we have two signed up so far. If you want to be baptized, just let us know, or just show up with clothes to get freezing cold. Um, We're going to do baptisms there. And then finally, on the second Sunday of August and September, we will have just one service only in downtown Salem, and we have rented out on August the... um, August the 13th and September 10th, we've rented out the Reed Opera House Ballroom and it is a beautiful space and the building that we will be in um, is 153 years old in the core of a city um, where people have given up the keys and we'll be able to go to that historical place spiritually and historically in our city and worship and preach the gospel, have a block party and start taking a city back. And so I'm going to have Dwayne just share with you real quick how you can partner with that. And then I'm going to give you kind of a point to be praying about as, as we close out with a song. So Dwayne, you want to come up?
1: That was a great message this morning, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was. It was awesome. All right. So I got white hair and I'm telling you, I'm not going to let the devil take anything. All right. So I'm going to take some stuff back. Here's an opportunity. Uh, Pastor Anthony talked about keys. I want to give you two keys that you can use. All right. So we're having a community lunches. We need people that want to volunteer to go on July 8th and August 5th, and there's some other dates we'll talk about later, but specifically those two dates from 930 to 1130, those are Saturdays, where we're just going to go out to our neighborhood, pass out some flyers, talk to some people. If they want prayer, we're going to pray for them, but we're going to invite them to come. This is one way that you can take a key and start opening up a gate and stepping through a gate and opening through some things. So I want to encourage you to do that. It's no big deal. We're going to meet here. I'm going to tell you how we're going to do it in 10 minutes and we're just going to go out and we're going to get it done. Zion is so excited about it. He's decided to put his wedding on hold that day so he can go out. But I said, Zion, I don't want you to do that. So I'm asking some of you to step into Zion's place and help us out on that Sunday morning, all right? The second thing we can do to use a key is we can give financially. Uh, last weekend we talked about this, and two people—one a 19-year-old, one a 20-year-old—gave $1,800. That was that was the money we received last week, which basically covers those first two community lunches. However, yeah, give a shout out for that if you want to. We can clap for that. Amen. However, we have we have some downtown outreach. We have some downtown the downtown food that we're going to be providing, uh, the rental space for the opera house, uh, a portable sound system. All in all, it comes to about $27,000, dollars Last week, I asked you to pray and see what, you, what the Lord uh, asked you to give. This is another way you can use your key. You can give, all right? You may not want to get up and speak in front of people or play music or other things, but you can definitely give. And I want to tell you a little story about this, all right? We have to be obedient to what God tells us to do. So probably about 25 or 30 years ago, I was uh, had a problem at a point where uh, a couple weeks where finances were real tight and I had an $87 bill that I had to pay. And I was at church and I went to this meeting and after this meeting, this uh, friend of mine came up to me and he goes, hey, I don't know why, but God told me to give you $100. He goes, I keep $100 emergencies uh, money in my wallet and I have a $100 bill. I want you to have it, I'm, I'm being obedient to what God told me to do. And I'm like, hey, well, great, thanks, I really appreciate that. And I'm thinking, I can pay my bill now, right? God answers prayer. Well, I go to the service, we have service. We had evening service and it's offering. And a pastor saying, "God is calling some of you to give. He's telling you right now that you need to give." And I'm thinking, "God, you just gave me this money. I'm not, I, I, he's not calling me." And God's and I can hear God, this Holy Spirit, saying to me, "Just be obedient." And I'm thinking, "I got this hundred dollars in my wallet." And then the pastor says, "Some of you have money right now in your wallet. And you don't want to take it out, but God's telling you to give it." And I'm thinking, "I'm gonna be obedient." So. I gave the money out of obedience, all right? And what I'm saying is God calls us to give out of obedience, expect nothing in return. Service gets over. Another close friend of mine comes up to me and goes, hey, somebody gave this to me to tell you to give, to take this. It's an envelope, and it's sealed. Like, oh, okay, so I open it up, and I, while I'm opening it, he said, the person told me, I don't know why, but told me to tell you this is because you're obedient. And I'm like, okay. I open it up, and there's 10 $100 bills in the envelope. Now, I'm not saying if you give money, you're going to get a whole bunch of money back. But what you're going to get is a deposit into the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to see people come to know Jesus. And we're going to shake up and we're going to take back what the enemy has stolen. Amen? So those are the ways you can give. So after service, see me. I have this clipboard. I would love to sign you up to help us out for a couple hours. Everybody can do this. It's very easy. And if you want to give, uh, designate it towards summer, right, Pastor Anthony? Put summer on a check or in the giving app or however you want to do that. We appreciate you all and thank you for all your help. Um,
0: If you today, if you heard this, you're like, well, I never knew that God gave me the keys to a kingdom. I never knew that what I bind on earth could be bound in heaven or what I loose on earth would be loosed in heaven. I never realized the meaning of what it means to truly be the church. Um, As we close with this song, um, myself, um, I'm going to ask Ryan Doherty to join me up here, one of our associate pastors. And him and I today, we, we actually have several hundred of these keys These keys are not charms or magic or any kind of spiritual significance, but these keys can remind you that when you're going about your day, that you hold the keys to the kingdom. And you might put it in your pocket, you might even put it on your keychain, you might hold this somewhere in your car so you would remember where you go, I have the keys to the kingdom. So if you'd like one of these today, and if you want to take that seriously, that I want to walk in the power and the authority that Jesus has given me, um, Ryan and I, we just like to hand this to you and bless you today, and, and bless this as we hand it to you. Next is, I believe with all my heart, there's some people here today, um, that you're really bound by something. Um, God showed me, someone who's bound right now by a tormented mind, that your mind is absolutely holding you captive and you cannot function because your mind is just going a million miles an hour and it's tormenting you with lies and thoughts of suicide and confusion. The Bible says, whatever we bind on earth, heaven's got our back. And I want to lay hands on you today, if that's you, and just pray that the enemy would be bound and that God would loose you from that. Um, someone else here today, um, God told me you've got a spirit of this. It's kind of weird, but a spirit of laziness. You've got no motivation. You're, you're lazy. You don't know what to do. Every time you try to do something, you're just kind of held back and you can't move forward. But you really want to be productive. You want to contribute. Um, the Lord wants to free you from that today. He wants to bind that and then loose in you some motivation. So, someone with a tormented mind, we want to lay hands on you, pray for you. Someone who has no motivation, and you just say, "If I could describe myself, it's lazy," and you need prayer. I want to pray for you as well. And then there is two marriages here that God just said, "Hey, your your marriage is bound by confusion. Your marriage is bound by the enemy who wants to destroy it and ruin your testimony and ruin your children's lives." Um, we want to pray that the enemy would be bound and that you'd be loosed to walk and live in a faithful marriage, not always happy one, right? Marriage isn't always happy, but one that's filled with fulfillment, contentment, and joy. And I've seen God radically transform marriages before and radically change hearts um, and lead them back to one another again. And you might have whatever it is, whether it's addiction, maybe you feel like you've got a demonic spirit just depressing you, tormenting you, whatever it is. Don't leave today without having someone lay their hands on you, pray for you, ask for that to be bound, and for you to be freed, whatever that is. Um, So as we sing, if you'd like to get a key as a reminder, um, you can come right here. If you want prayer for something, um, if you could just walk right through this door. We've got this open door throughout this entire series. One more week left. And we've got about four or five pastors on the other side that are just going to agree in faith for you that that would be bound and you would be loosed. So let's, let's worship.